Hi everybody, this is Pastor Mike, and it's wonderful to see you this Sunday. No, actually it's, this is a makeup video, or part of it is a makeup video because we had a glitch. And so I'm gonna tell you about what we talked about on this Sunday, and then we're gonna switch in the middle of the video and you'll get a sense of what happened that Sunday. But this is the first week of our new series, Unexpected Gift. This is our Advent series, and this Sunday was the first Sunday of Advent. Advent's a word that comes from a Latin word meaning coming because Jesus Christ came. God the Son came in flesh, and that's what we celebrate. In this series, we're gonna be looking at this unexpected gift through the eyes of multiple observers. And this week, the title of the sermon is The Long-Awaited King. And I'm gonna literally kick us off by looking through the eyes of multiple observers, but they're mostly gonna be observing from a pretty far distance. And that's because they're gonna be mostly observers from the Hebrew scriptures well before Jesus' first advent. I said first advent, that means there's gonna be a second advent, and I'm looking forward to that. I hope you too are eagerly awaiting that. All right, long-awaited king, because the First Testament has a lot to say about the need for a king who can set things right. Our unexpected gift is a king who is a long-awaited king and a greatly needed king. God in the Garden of Eden in the wake of the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God's rule, is gonna have a message for the serpent. Here's what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He will crush your head, you will strike his foot. Oh, the serpent who had stirred up trouble from Adam and Eve is gonna pester their offspring. But though the serpent will bite, this offspring, this he, will give the servant the boot. And the word that our translation says, uh, uses as offspring is literally seed. You could use it of a plant, you can use it of human offspring, you could use it of an animal's offspring as well, but you get the idea. The word is used regularly in Genesis, and when it's used in a place like this, you start to see a pattern emerging of tracing a line of humans who are ultimately going to fulfill what God has said here. It's kind of interesting when you look at it that way. And the late John Salehammer has an observation about this seed in this passage. He says, the two sides are represented by two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In the ensuing battle, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Though wounded in the struggle, the woman's seed will be victorious. Verse 15 still contains a puzzling yet important ambiguity. Who is the seed of the woman? It seems obvious that the purpose of this verse has not been to answer that question, but rather to raise it. Genesis is gonna to continue to pursue this idea as though the writer has in mind this question, who is the seed of the woman? But as I read through the book, I don't see an ultimate answer. It doesn't come in Genesis, though I do see God's faithfulness to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, as milestones on this long road to who is the seed of this woman? 
everybody's offspring falls short of this kind of victory as Professor Salehammer was talking about. Now, Israel needed a king because on their own, they never kept following God. They never did. So we're leaping through a bunch of text here and we're jumping into the judges. So we went from Genesis and I'm just gonna gloss over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua and go into judges. And the judges weren't really judges in our sense. Somebody in a black robe, maybe a gavel. They were more like what we think of as executive branch people. But remember that in the ancient world, the king was the ultimate judge. If the king says you're innocent, you're innocent. If the king says you're guilty, you're guilty. If the king says, set him free, you're free. If the king says, executor, you're executed. Now, after Moses and Joshua, Israel's leaders die, the nation of Israel is gonna have this difficult time. They're gonna cry out to God and he'll raise someone to rescue them. But their attention, it, <laughs> they always lose sight of God. Their attention's always short-lived until the next invasion by their neighbors, they forget. And over the time and time and time again, these temporary leaders seem to get a bit less and less impressive. The nation's rescue tends not to last as long. And in chapters 17, 18, 19, and then the final verse of Judges, the problem seems to be the lack of a king. So Judges 21, 25, the final word. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But the next and final judge will be Samuel, who's also a prophet and a priest, and he serves God faithfully, but the people have decided they need a king like the other nations. Oh, like the other nations. Here's how it went down. First Samuel chapter eight, starting in verse four. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So there are some interesting things that God says to Samuel. He says, it's not you, it's me who's being rejected. No other nation in the world has this special covenant with God and they wanna throw it away to have an established human government and what the king who is reigning will claim as his rights Samuel's gonna tell them, the king is numero uno. The people and their resources are always the king's resources to be utilized in his cause. The focus is going to shift from what's good for the people to what's good for the king, even if the marketing says a little differently. But the people want a king anyway. And Samuel's gonna highlight another problem later. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. 
Okay, that if at the beginning of that sentence, yeah, it's, it's not gonna happen. And one of the reasons it's not gonna happen is both the people and the king in this form of governance have to follow God for it to work. It got more difficult, not less. And what happens under the first king, Saul, is not everybody working together to follow God. But in David, God identifies a man who is imperfect, but who is one after God's own heart, and God directs David's anointment as king. Anointment, we'll call it anointing, how about that? He goes further than that, though. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, so this is much, much further along in the story of Samuel. David's house, kingdom, and throne are going to be forever. So 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And when you think about that promise, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's not a house, a kingdom, a throne of David in modern day Israel. So we have a couple of possibilities. This account could be incorrect. Or maybe it means something else, and I suppose that there could be a third possibility. Uh, something like forever sometimes means less than forever, but that's part of what makes the unexpected gift such a startling surprise to those who initially encounter it. And that's part of what makes Psalm 2 so interesting to me. We're going to start about halfway through this psalm, Psalm 2 starting at verse seven, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an, a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead you to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And the king in this psalm is, it's, he's got an unusually close relationship with God. And he has this other peculiarity. He has the authority to rule all the nations. And he is the judge. Those who shelter in him experience life. Those who follow their own way are going to experience destruction that's going to inevitably, absolutely, certainly result. So God's ultimate king will rightly judge based on who follows him. And I'm going to say this, and I'll probably say it again. The nations in the Hebrew scriptures, that's you and me. Goyim, Gentiles, the nations. God's king has the authority to break the Goyim or to give them refuge. It doesn't appear to matter what your bloodline is. It doesn't matter what your bloodline is. That means you and I can serve him and that we get to celebrate his rule. But what does this king have to do with Advent? Where are you going, Mike? Let's go to the prophet Isaiah for a perspective. Isaiah 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. So judge, lawgiver, king, and savior. Wait, the Lord? Yahweh? 
we just read about the son being king. How now are we saying God is the king? I mean, God was supposed to be the king, but the people wanted a human to rule them like the other nations. Now, some people still do want to have a human rule them. And so I want you to hear my plea. No political figure who is currently on the national or international stage can rule you. Maybe somebody could govern you. Maybe somebody could do that justly. But rule? No. And that makes us not very interested in having a king, don't you think? One of the problems, and I may say this again too, is that when we think of a king, we think of somebody who would rule like all the people that we know would rule. So something, something else needs to happen. Here's another take from Ezekiel. Now, in the Sunday service, I actually held up a couple of sticks and pointed out that God specifically told Ezekiel to take two sticks as a visual aid as he gave his message. I'm not gonna do that in this video today, but I just want you to know God's communication, it's pretty clear, it's pretty careful, and it's very intentional. Here's what he says Ezekiel needs to tell the people. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their other offenses for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will know, they will not only know, they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever and David my servant will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, when did that ever happen? Then the nations, verse 28 says, will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. When did all the faithful Israel turn, return from exile to be ruled by King David forever? Well, never yet anyway. And there are figurative ways that you can interpret this. And there is meaning to this that may have been partially fulfilled in the short term. But I think the primary thing that this passage tells us is that God's intention is for his people to be reunited under one king from the line of David. And I don't know what Ezekiel knew about the details of this unique forever kingship, but I do know that how I read scripture has multiple levels. And I wanted to talk briefly about that. At the base level, 
I've got to understand what the sender intended. The person who's writing it down, pushed by the Holy Spirit as they're writing a letter or they're writing a book, collaborators who are working on it together, however that's going along, what they intended to say to their intended target audience matters. That's got to be the basis. What the author intended to say is critical, but it's also important to know what else God has said through the writers in the rest of scripture. The biblical canon, which is not a canon with a fuse and cannonballs, it's scripture collected together and determined to be God's word. Thus, this sermon includes a bunch of scripture from a bunch of different writers today. We're looking all through the biblical canon to see what in that broader context each passage might mean. But I also read scripture with a Christocentric lens, which means that Christ is in the middle of us. There's evidence everywhere of a bigger story where Eve's offspring is gonna defeat the serpent. And well, we've got evidence of that because we keep reading. Let me give you an example of another prophet's take on things. Micah 2.13, the one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Okay, so I'm repeating, their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. And maybe what that means is the king leads the people and God leads them all. But in the light of the coming of Jesus, in the light of Jesus's advent and his next advent, I'm having a hard time not seeing this in the sense of their king leads them, their God leads them. God would at last be their true king. And this is not the king that everybody was envisioning when Joseph and Mary became betrothed. This is not who people had been waiting for for a long time, a person who was God-man, there was no way for people to have even a picture in their head of what that would look like. And yet, that's kind of what happens. Let's take a look at another prophet, Isaiah 53, starting in verse three. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So look, it wasn't because he looked like a king. Verse four, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. In fact, we thought he was a sinner because bad things happened to him. Ugh, we're like Job's lousy friends assuming what's going on based on a misunderstanding of what God wants and what God demands. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that bought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. So it's my sin, it's your sin that victimized him and he took the punishment that we deserved, that we owned, that we earned, so that we could be at peace with God. That's amazing. Verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, 
the iniquity of us all. Man, not just mine, our sin, our rebellion, our inability and unwillingness to follow him. And I will tell you, I am a stupid, scared sheep with no direction sense, and I want what I want, even though it has often been bad for me. And the injustice is that going in the wrong direction, when I have gone in the wrong direction, the consequences have been borne more by my Savior than by me. How do I know? Well, let's look in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when Isaiah wrote about this suffering servant, I don't think he knew that the suffering servant would be God the Son. But I'd recommend reading all of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah because they are amazing to read. And here's what happens. Matthew comes in and he's writing this down and he says, why yes, God did give up his life for you, dear reader. Let me give you another example of Christocentric interpretation I think is really amazing from Hosea, another prophet. He writes in Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. This is God speaking. He says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. What does that mean? Well, that obviously back when the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt, they were called out. Yes, true, but wait a minute. Let's look at Matthew 2.15. We're picking up in the middle here, but they stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And Matthew says, you bet this God, man, this king, is the fulfillment of all the best news of all the prophets. You follow this? Joseph leads his family back out of Egypt, but this is another fulfillment of Hosea. Matthew's connecting the dots for us. Amazing. How about another one? This one from Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Okay, that's Isaiah. Now let's look back at Matthew. Matthew 4, starting in verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. All has been dark and there was no hope. Bondage to sin and death had been complete 
had been total, but Matthew knows that all this has been changed because he's writing it in the light that his master has shed because Matthew didn't just hear his teaching, he saw what happened when his master confronted death. Oh. One last prophet, Daniel. Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 through 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Now, this one like a son of man, coming into God's presence, just a side note here, normally that's a good way to be vaporized. All right. Uh, okay. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Authority, glory, sovereign power, everlasting dominion, kingdom. But the thing that gets my attention the most, to be honest, in this verse is that everyone worships him. There's only one who gets worship, my friends. There is only one who deserves worship. There is only one who will never fail, and that's God himself. Okay, and look, our tech failed over the weekend, and, you know, that's not how God is. And we're going to jump forward into Matthew, and as long as we're going to do a time jump, let's do the, the effect. How much more dignified could I be? None. None more dignified. Matthew 26, 63 and 64. Jesus remained silent. Um, by the way, Isaiah 53 said he'd be silent in front of his oppressors. So just bonus, bonus round. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, perhaps somewhere you have ever gotten the impression that the Son of Man, which is the phrase, the title that Jesus uses to describe himself most often, is emphasizing his humanity. Sort of human, not deity, almost, is what some people have said. I'm sorry, Jesus just yeeted that idea into the Son. It's gone because, am I the Messiah? I wouldn't say it that way says Jesus, I'd say it this way instead. Confirmed. Paul says it a different way. In Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Tim says it a different way. Jesus is God with skin. And here's the problem. You and I have a death problem. And the reality is, ever since Eden went wrong, you and I have been under a judgment of death because we individually do care more about ourselves than about the God who made us and everything that we see, everything we interact with. And we seek satisfaction in things that if we're thinking straight, we know will never satisfy. So that dream car, one of those oh no lights is gonna come on the dashboard eventually. I've got a witness back there. That dream home, Termites are going to munch that bad boy, especially around here. 
Your vacations may be amazing, but they're going to tend you either to skin cancer or to frostbite, just depending on what you, what you prefer. And, you know, theoretically, most of the staff report to me, so this one's kind of tough, but your workplace, not just church staff, but all of you, if it's ever fulfilling, it's going to revert eventually back to meh at best, okay? I don't think I'm telling you things you don't know. The dreamy person is going to become the person you get into dumb arguments with about things that don't matter, and you keep getting into them. Your dear, sweet children will say and do preposterously stupid things. And worse than that, they're going to try to hide it from you. And the only thing sadder than trying to do that is how bad they are at doing it at first and how disastrous it ends up if they're ever successful. Your pastors will often be too preoccupied with something to give you some shepherding attention that you'd like. And let's face it, um, sometimes they'll speak too long. Decay is the rule here, my friends, because death really does reign over us all. But the solution to the problem doesn't really sound very appealing because you think you don't want a king. And that's what I think, too. The last literal king that this nation experience was George III. And he really wasn't that bad, minus these long periods of time when um, mental illness took over and he, he was not helpful at all. You and I don't want another boss telling us what to do. We're happy to snuggle into a very fatherly, comforting God who protects us. But when things aren't awful, how interested are we really in letting him change us? who we are, and what we live for. But the problem is that we're used to people like us being king, being boss, being in charge. People who think of themselves. People who seek power. People who sometimes dominate the weak. But that's not what Jesus did. He started as a baby. And it doesn't get any weaker than that. The king had everything. He deserves everything, but he gave everything up, and he did it for you and for me. It's a dangerous business, by the way, being a baby, even in our day and age. So he had everything. He has everything. And my question to you is, will you follow him? And this isn't an altar call question. This is a... I'm already following Christ. Am I following Christ? I don't want to follow Christ. Will you follow him? Will you follow him deeper than you ever have before? Will you follow him far enough to ask some questions about how this works? Will you follow him enough to say, I have these objections. Hey, can somebody help me with them? And here's the thing, you don't qualify yourself to follow him by being good. You don't impress him with your understanding. The child we remember is special, not only because he gave up his rights and his privileges, but because he did that to become one of us with us. And we say glory to you, Lord Jesus, because <laughs> you surrendered your glory to come be our rescuer, our shepherd, our forever king. 
Because I mentioned preaching too long, let me close with a short quotation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer written in 1940. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? The theologian who would become a martyr a few short years later. Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. When Samuel warned the people about how the kings would see them as resources to be harvested and redirected in the king's interest, Jesus instead, he starts with all the resources in the universe. He made them, he owns them. And out of love, he says, I'm going to put myself into the weakest place in the world as a baby, not even in a cool modern crib, but in a manger, a feed trough. Do you love him? Do you want to value people the way he did? The way he does? Let's pray. God, I thank you that we don't depend on our own goodness to be okay. And I thank you that you were willing to set aside everything in order to be like us, and yet you were so unlike us in how you responded to every provocation, every difficulty, every extra grace-required person. And I ask, God, that you would give us a passion for this unexpected gift that maybe wasn't even what we wanted and today isn't what we want in some way. Would you soften our hearts to what he wants to do to change us, to be more in his image. And I ask God that as you do that, that you would make us people who together can love you and represent you in a way we never could otherwise. I pray these things in the name of the one who gave it all for us, Jesus.